And if you would, please turn with me to the Psalms. We are in Psalm 30 this morning. Psalm 30, verses 1 through 12. The Word of God says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we come to you this morning as those who are no longer dead in trespasses and sins but have been made alive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Father, despite the the afflictions and the trials that some of us have experienced, Lord, let us drink of the joy that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to fix our eyes on you and fix our eyes on your glorious gospel? Help us to receive the good food of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, for one, am glad that we are ending on Psalm 30. We've been going through the Psalms during the summer. And next week, we will explore a different topic, talking about creation and divine providence, and then turning back to the book of Acts. But Psalm 30, I think, is a fitting conclusion to the summer through the Psalms. And so I'm glad for at least a few reasons. Number one, because Psalm 30, in case you haven't noticed, is so good. I mean, it's delightful. It's, it's so delicious. I mean, you can serve this up for me every single morning, and I will enjoy it every single time. 
I mean, take notice of some of the words and some of the phrases or sentences that we find in the psalm. Anger being for a moment, but the favor of God being for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The turning of mourning into dancing, the loosening of the clothing of sorrow and distress into being clothed with gladness. Secondly, I like this psalm in part because of some of the bitterness that we have tasted over this month. Right? As dear precious saints are going through their own personal trials and distress, as we consider brothers and sisters who are no longer with us and have gone on and finished the race and now are with Christ Jesus, we rejoice with that and still we taste a kind of bitterness because their presence is no longer with us. And we also, though we ourselves may not personally be going through particular trial, and God has favored us and been gracious to us in some sense because we are a family in Christ Jesus, we cannot help also but taste some of the bitterness that brothers and sisters themselves personally taste. And I'm also glad that we're ending on Psalm 30 because of the sweetness that is promised here in the psalm. And hopefully we'll get a taste of that sweetness as we work through the psalm. And part of what makes that which is sweet so sweet is when you have tasted some bitterness. So even before we get to some of the sweetness, let us first, as hard as it might be, to consider some of the bitterness that we see even in the psalm concerning, firstly, when calamity comes to lodge. In verse 6, the psalmist says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, or in my security, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Some conflicting emotions going on here. It would appear that the psalmist has committed a kind of offense. Now the entire psalm, I think, is a song of dedication. Sort of the psalmist recounting the many deliverances that he has experienced with the gracious hand of the Lord. But here he focuses on a particular offense that he may have committed before the Lord. And so let's just sort of camp here for a moment because the psalmist's offense, I think, cautions us to a number of things, at least a few things that we ought to be aware of. And one thing is mistaking God's provision for self-sufficiency. That is taking a look at one's own hands and saying, look at what my hands have done. Look at all that my hands have provided Right? It's a mark of paganism to trust in one's own hands and never consider that it is actually the gracious hands of the Lord that ultimately has provided. A second caution for us to consider is treasuring those gifts 
more than treasuring the giver of those gifts. Right? That's a mark of idolatry. We focus so much on the gifts and we delight in the gifts and we take great pleasure in the gifts forgetting that God is the ultimate giver of those gifts, that we should be focusing our pleasure and our joy and our satisfaction first and foremost in Him. The third caution is when we become so fixated on the gifts to the neglect of beholding the Lord. We fix our eyes so much on the gifts, the here and now, the eternal pleasure, or the, the worldly, the earthly, or the temporary pleasures that we have in this life, and then we forget about the Lord. Right? We want to be cautious of those things. And it would seem that the psalmist himself is experiencing a kind of discipline. His trial is a form of discipline because, in a way, he has forgotten the Lord. So he says, I trusted in my own hands. It's a negative statement. And then in the positive statement, in verse 7, by your favor, O Lord. In other words, he's recognizing at one hand, I trusted in myself, but on the other hand, I'm also recognizing, no, it is God who ultimately is my giver. And if I have anything, it comes from his hand. And because he has forgotten that, the Lord hid his face, and as a result, the psalmist is dismayed. Those are some wise words in Proverbs 37 when it says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful or necessary for me, or give me only what is necessary, lest... I be, I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Sometimes the trials that we face in life are a form of the Lord's discipline if we have, in fact, committing an offense before the Lord. But even when we are disciplined by the Lord, we should not be too discouraged or to think that the Lord has somehow abandoned us or has forsaken us. Consider the words of Hebrews 12, verse 5. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they who disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes we experience trials because the Lord aims to discipline us for our sins and our offenses, but even that, He intends to communicate His love towards us. 
And this is a mark of adoption. It's a mark of family. It's a mark of being a child of the living God. But not all trials are a form of the discipline of the Lord. Not all trials that the saints experience is not owing to some kind of sin or some offense that they have committed before the Lord. The Lord permits certain distresses and certain trials to come upon the life of a believer for his own purposes and reasons. And as we read earlier in 1 Peter 3.6, we know that in all trials, the purpose is intended to strengthen the faith of the precious saints. So leaving the discipline of the Lord and focusing much more broadly on the trials that the saints endure... Sometimes calamity and distress comes to lodge in the form of these trials. They come to take their place, to make an abode, to make their dwelling in the life of the precious believer. For reasons that sometimes we know and for sometimes reasons that we do not understand and may never know. Dimitri Shostakovich's, I think I'm pronouncing that rightly, It's a Russian composer under, living under Stalin's Russia. And Stalin wanted, and you might even say threatened, all musicians and composers to only compose positive and lighthearted and optimistic music Dimitri, on the other hand, would not, but he sought to express through his music the reality of living under Stalin's Russia. And if you listen to Dimitri's string quartet, number eight in C minor, it is actually a very oppressive and a very dark piece. It's melancholic, it's gloomy, it's, it's dark. It's bitter. He sought to express through the sound of music the hopelessness, the despair of living under such a leader. And if you listen to the song to its, through its entirety, the song doesn't end well. In fact, this, it, it, it doesn't seem to end at all. It's like it doesn't land the plane. The plane is still up in the sky, experiencing strong turbulence. It's like the ship never reaches the harbor. It's still in the ocean, storm-tossed to and fro. And there are moments in the song where you think that it might end, and it doesn't end. And even in the conclusion, it's not really a conclusion. It's sort of, you kind of are left with this feeling of like, Like, it's just, there's no end. Like, it just sort of keeps going. And as human beings, like, we, we want a joyful conclusion. We want the fairy tale ending. But there's no such thing in Dimitri's song. And sometimes the trials of the saints are like that. Calamity comes to lodge in our lives and comes playing Dimitri's song. 
And we get a sense of that. We consider the psalm and some of the words it uses from Sheol or the grave. It says about being among the pit, weeping, the night, the pit, dust. Is this feeling of dying. And Dimitri's song is, is over 20 minutes long. And sometimes when calamity comes to lodge, right, you wonder, when's it going to go away? How long is it going to lodge for? It's going to continue to play this depressing music on and on and on and on and on. We have no idea how long the night is going to endure. But as we continue to look on the psalm, we see that the psalm also shows us that we're not left alone with the calamity that comes to lodge. Secondly, we see that there's a third party who also comes to lodge. When we consider the language of the psalm, this language of descent and ascent, this language of death and resurrection, we would be remiss if we did not take notice, if we ignored, if we had not noticed the prophetical flavor of the psalm. I mean, you just consider the opposing emotions, these emotions that are juxtaposed, these emotions that are contrary to one another. Right, when you read that weeping may tarry in the night, but joy comes in the moment. There's first the anger that is but for a moment, and then there is this favor from God for a lifetime. The sackcloth of mourning then turns to being clothed with gladness. These positive and negative statements, these positive and negative emotions are intended to highlight for us the temporary nature of these negative emotions. They serve to, to show us the fact that indeed weeping may tarry for the night, but joy certainly will come. That the darkest emotions may feel like they are going on and on and on and on, but the promise is that they are just temporary. They're not going to last. Even though Dimitri's song may be 20 minutes, it might even seem longer as you listen to it. But it does end. Because the song is temporary. Just as the song of trial and affliction may feel like it's going on and on, but it does end. The psalm would appear to be putting to words the lived experience of Jesus Christ as we consider the prophetical nature of the psalm. It gives words to the calamity of Jesus himself as he was lifted up on the cross while at the same time feeling as if he was sunk so low to the ground, even to the pit. That even as he was suspended in the air, crucified to the cross, looking down upon all those who were looking up at him, beholding a kind of spectacle, at the same time, the reality of his experience is that he himself felt like he was being looked down upon as a criminal, 
as one who was filled with shame. As he himself feels the anger of God directed towards him. Why? Because he, there on the cross, bore the sins of his people. The anger that should have been directed towards us is directed instead towards the precious Jesus Christ. And as Jesus there agonizing, weeping, because his God, his Father, has hid his face from him, hence why he cries out, Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes emotions expressed with pen and paper is better expressed than audibly. Sometimes anguish is better said in poetic form. Sometimes pain is communicated better when put to a song. Sometimes an instrument can express our lived experience better than we could with our own words. And the psalm seems to be expressing in poetic and even in song form the agony and the pain of Jesus Christ. The pain and agony that he endured, not because of his own sin, but because of your sin and mine. And we know this psalm is intended to point to Jesus Christ, not because of the language of death and resurrection, descent and ascent that it uses, but also because Jesus himself tells us as he takes his disciples in the road of Emmaus at the end of Luke, that he goes on to show them how the scriptures, all of it, are intended to point to himself. But we can read the psalm into the calamity of Jesus when calamity has come to lodge in his life. And when we read it in that light, when we take this psalm and read it into the experience of Jesus, we also then see that his anguish and his travail was also temporary. Because descent gave way to ascent. Death gave way to life. The tune of anger was overshadowed by the favor of God. Weeping was turned to joy. Mourning was turned to, to dancing. And sackcloth was turned to clothing of gladness. So that indeed the calamity of Jesus was temporary and that what, that which was temporary gave way to that which was permanent and that is permanent joy and permanent rest and permanent peace and permanent delight. So that God has taken a dark piece of music and he's phased it out and he's turned it into a music of joy and a music of glory. God's people have gone centuries without hearing a prophetic voice until finally Jesus had entered the scene, changing Dimitri's dark song into something much more optimistic and much more joy-filled. Hence why the angels declared to the lonely shepherds in the middle of the night as they blazed forth with, with light and glory, saying to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Saying similarly, Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region 
and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. In Christ Jesus, there is a security that has been purchased for all of his precious saints. And that is that the song of distress and darkness and gloom and calamity and even of suffering will be turned into a song of joy. Jesus was honest with his disciples when he says in John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn, there's the key word, will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The joy of the saint is secured in the person of Jesus Christ, like the flaming swords that protected the Garden of Eden from anyone entering. So the joy of the Christian is safe, locked, hidden in, and protected in Christ Jesus, so that as long as Jesus remains resurrected and alive, the joy of the Christian is always safely secured in Christ Jesus. So that because Jesus lives and will never die again, the joy of the Christian is then also forever enduring. It is inseparable from Christ Jesus. Christ takes the song, the dark song that might last for a long time, and he shortens it, and he phases it into a better song, a song that is going to last forever. In Christ Jesus, the security that we have is that while we might hear for a period of time and even for a long season only Dimitri's dark song, the promise is that that will not be our last song. The song of Jesus, the song of the gospel, the song of glory and joy and delight will be the last song. So knowing this, how might this help us today? That takes us to thirdly, hope-filled and confident in future joy. So knowing that Dimitri's song will not be our last song, because Christ has made it that that will not be our last song, this helps us to pray today. It helps us to pray with hope. In Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This passage actually bears a striking resemblance to what we see here in the Psalms and juxtaposing two very different experiences, two very different emotions or two different realities. What's contrasted here is light with weight momentary with eternal and affliction with glory is that one will certainly give way to the other. Christ has secured it for us. And so that knowing these things, we can pray each day with hope. 
This keeps us from despair. This keeps us from hopelessness. This keeps us from giving up. So we can pray today with this hope that morning certainly will be turned into dancing. Secondly, this gives us a solid confidence. Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, has created a pattern for all those who follow him. And that pattern is, yes, mourning and trials come, but they will always give way to joy and delight. And so this gives us a solid confidence today so that when we do endure trials, we can also know that the song is going to change. It's not going to last forever. Christ has made it so. And thirdly, it helps us to endure patiently. When we know these things, when we are confident in these things, when we believe that, yes, Christ has secured a glorious song for us, it helps to dull the strongest and the sharpest sounds in Dimitri's song. Something that helps is memorizing Scripture, particularly memorizing the promises of God. The, memori- the, the promises of the Lord are intended to be are intended to give off a kind of sweetness when all you taste is bitterness. Reminding you that the Lord is good, that the Lord is faithful, that the Lord keeps and protects His people, that the Lord is the gentle shepherd of His sheep. Calling those scriptures when you need them most is helpful in enduring trials patiently. It's helpful for us, even as those of us parents and kids in the home, to train up our kids and help them to remember or memorize, rather, these precious promises in the gospel so that when they do have trials in their life, they have something to recall, taste some sweetness of these gospel promises. When life brings a measure of bitterness. Old Betty got saved much later in life. But with the energy and strength that she had, she just she served. She helped people in the church. She did this, she did that. She was all about those things until one day she was stricken with an illness. And from then on she was bedridden. Her minister came to her one day and they had conversations and he asked her, Betty, it must be, it must be hard to be bedridden when you were all about, you were doing various different things, you were energetic, you were lively, and now you're bedridden. Is it hard? And she says, 
Sometimes it is. But it's not as hard as it could be. When I had my energy and my strength, I did what the Lord wanted me to do. I served, I helped, I took care of this, I served the Lord in all these different ways, but now it was seen that the Lord is just simply calling me to just lie down and rest. In those moments when it's hard, I recall these precious promises of the gospel that helps me to taste a bit of sweetness. When it seems as though things are a bit bitter now. For those of us who are younger, for those of us who still have minds intact, for those of us who still have a measure of strength and energy, now is the time to pour yourself out into the Word. Now is the time to memorize some sweet promises in the Scriptures because there may come a time when you might be bedridden and you cannot do anything but just lie there and rest and just ruminate on some sweet promises of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There's one more thing that I think the psalm calls us to as we consider how the Lord turns weeping into joy and secures for us a glorious song in His precious gospel. And that takes us forth and lastly to a liveness to God in worship. As I consider the psalm and as I read through it, I cannot help but feel a sense of, a sense of life in the psalm, and some of the words that he uses, he begins the psalm by saying, I will extol you, O Lord. And then he calls the congregation, sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints. Gave thanks to his holy name. The anger might be for a moment, but his favors for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Even in considering the kind of discipline that he himself is experiencing, he pleased the Lord. Lord, what profit is there if I were to go down to the pits? Those who are dead do not worship you. Their lips are silent. They cannot praise you. And then the result is, 11, you have turned my mourning into dancing. The Lord has delivered. He has loosed my sackcloth of grieving, and then enclosed me with gladness so that my glory or my deliverance or my restoration now may sing of the joy of the Lord and sing His praise. In Christ Jesus, the saints have this eternal sunrise that began with the morning that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And in this eternal morning, gloom is always made temporary by the light of this eternal sunrise in Christ Jesus and the gospel, producing or should produce then a wealth of worship. The rainfall of God's grace should produce a harvest of praise. The appearance of Matthew Henry says, Joy is the heart of praise, as praise is. It's a language of joy. You and I certainly are allowed our seasons of grief and sorrow. But to always, 
even in times of peace and rest, even to walk about during such seasons with sort of like this Eeyore-like disposition, casts a dark shadow of the joy of the gospel and gives the world the most compelling reason to not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, dear saints, you have been saved. You've been redeemed, no longer dead in trespasses, but been made alive in Christ Jesus. Once you were deserving of the wrath of God, but now you have received mercy. Once deserving of eternal judgment, but now have received eternal life in paradise with Christ. So that when someone might ask you, right, are you happy to be a Christian? Are you do you like being a Christian? The response should not be, well, yeah, I guess. You just won a million dollars. Wow, you must be so excited. Right, are you excited? Well, I guess. You just had a baby. Congratulations. You might be exuberant. Well, I guess. Wow, you just got married. Congratulations. You must be extremely happy. Are you happy? Well, I guess. Right, who responds that way? Right, nobody responds that way. It's like, are you alive? And even in deteriorating health, a sign of aliveness in Christ Jesus is simply holding fast to Jesus. 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If you went to the shop, to the mechanic, what was the mechanic and said, my car needs repair. It needs new brakes and rotors, it needs a new transmission, it needs this, this, and that. And the mechanic is going to look at you and say, well, I can tell you it's going to cost you a fortune to fix that old car. With that money, you could just simply go and buy yourself a brand new car. You're like, oh, okay. So you go and buy yourself a new car, right? And you immediately notice a difference, right? It, it sounds better. It drives a whole lot better. It looks better. It even smells better. Christ Jesus came and gave his life not to repair the old, but to purchase something new, to cause us to be born again, to give us new life. And the point is that a mark of aliveness in Christ Jesus is worship, is praise, is giving honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God, because Jay, Jay Smith the other day had shared that as Gene was in the hospital last week, there was, a, I think it was a, a universalist minister of some sort making his round and came to Jean's room and talking with her, and she just said, I believe in Jesus. And he sort of fumbled his words and didn't really know what to say in response to that. That's encouraging. That's a sign of aliveness 
in Christ Jesus. I want to make sure you know I, I believe in Jesus. To be alive in Christ Jesus, it's a difference between sort of a, a sagging and drooping rose and one that remains, that stands tall and blooming. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with one's physical strength or stamina. It's an inner disposition. It's a difference between a kite that is just there on the ground, not doing anything, and a kite that is soaring in the sky by the winds. Take heart. Morning may tarry, but joy comes in the morning. Perhaps through this difficult season that we've been experiencing, perhaps the Lord may be preparing His church to receive His blessings. Who knows? I pray that that might be the case. But if we mourn, let us mourn with hope, confident in the God who can turn sorrow into joy and has secured that joy for us in Christ Jesus so that when sorrow comes to lodge with us, playing his dark peace, Christ assures us that that will not be our last song, but his magnificent song will be our last song.